Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 28 uh, through chapter 2, verse 5. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. But they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the righteous judgment of God falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, please add a blessing a special blessing to the reading of your word and help us to process appropriately, God. Help us. Lord, this is an infinitely intense topic and you are infinitely powerful to produce righteous hearing with your righteous proclamation despite our ears and despite me. I'm asking you to have your way. May the gravity of your truth produce gratitude and change for your glory and our joy. Amen. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. And I want to say welcome to the Springs to everybody. Today it's the last day of our unfiltered series where we're answering questions that are being asked in our culture. And uh, we saved the best for last. We saved the most intense question for last. And that question is this. How can a loving God send people to hell? Have you ever asked that question? I have. It's a hard question to to ask, and most often we kind of try to avoid it. How can a loving God send people to hell? Uh, I'm going to pick apart this question even as I answer it today. 
But better than that, I want to, to process this rightly. I understand that this topic is really intense. And so I don't want to be too heavy with this topic and uh, kind of be overbearing or manipulate anyone's fears about hell today. But I think it would also be gravely inappropriate to be too light about this topic. I want to confess to you that on Monday, in our growth group, I made a mistake. Uh, we were talking about this topic, about hell, and I said something silly, like a wordplay, like, hell no, or something like that. And immediately I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God told me, Peter, if you're joking about hell, then there's something about me in my word that you're not seeing. So I don't want to be too light about this topic, and I also don't want to be too heavy, as if any man could compel another man or woman to come to know Jesus out of fear for hell and fear-mongering. It doesn't correlate. Our fear and our placing our faith in God and becoming Christians and loving God, I don't think anyone's ever loved God simply out of a fear of hell. Those two things don't correlate. And yet, listen, if you're in here and you want to love God, on the other hand, maybe, maybe today you'll come to love God for the very first moment and you'll become a Christian. Maybe the Holy Spirit will be pleased for you to become born again and start loving God. Or maybe you already love God and you want to love him more with a greater holiness and severity and truth and you want to spread his love more effectively. I hope you do. If you want to love God, there's something gravely lacking in your affection for him if you don't soberly consider the hell from which he alone saves. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Why is there no fear in love? Because God deals with it. And the word of God addresses and processes the very real, very imminent fire of judgment in hell. So we're going to process this appropriately. Why does God send people to hell if he's loving? You see the accusation in the question? Well, we're going to let God speak for himself on this. Verse 28, our very first verse and since they, that's us, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Uh, today, with our passage, I have six basic observations about judgment. Okay, the first two are from this very first verse, which will take up a large portion of our time. The first two, first one is this. We all know about judgment. We all know about judgment. So today, as I go verse by verse through our passage, I'm not proposing any new ideas to people. I'm exposing things that we already know and that we try to stuff down or suppress. Things that God's already shown us through, through how he made us and wired us. We all know 
about judgment. It's just that they didn't see fit to acknowledge the knowledge we have inside of us. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God. Now, this is just a summary of our fallen state. Why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to people? Well, we didn't see fit to acknowledge God's goodness. We didn't see fit to acknowledge God. Verse 32 goes on to say, They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. There's something that we know about God. Chapter 2, verse 2, later in our passage, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We all know about God and about judgment. We just try to not acknowledge the knowledge that he's placed inside us. We didn't see fit to acknowledge God. I think the King James version of uh, this verse, this phrase, is the best. It says, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Even a few verses before this, if you go uh, to verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans, it says this, it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. You see, see, we know about God in judgment. We just suppress it. For what is known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power. See, why would we, if we're just animals, hold up this invisible idea called love unless it's real? There's parts of God that we like to accept and suppress other parts of who he is. We know about God. We know about judgment. We we all face it. Not just ultimately, but every day we face the reality of it. And to the degree that we deny this or suppress it is the same degree to which we become more guilty of it. We know about judgment. We just suppress it. Because the preference of our sin that never satisfies, and we keep doing it anyway. We, we suppress or stuff down the knowledge of God, sometimes through scoffing and, and mockery of God and his word. Uh, others, seemingly sweeter, suppress the knowledge of God by, uh, by kind of intellectual facades or, or masks or ideas that we place that are somehow better than God's ideas. Uh, some of us, like me on Monday, through just light joking and trying to make light of something that is inappropriate to do so. Many of us suppress the knowledge of God through little deflections. Kind of like, I focus on heaven and the goodness of God in heaven and not on hell and judgment. Or I focus on the love of God and not the judgment of God as if the two were in competition with one another. And you couldn't consider both of them at the same time. As if God is in competition with himself. Is God loving or is God angry? We make up questions like that. We we create a dichotomy in order to suppress the whole truth of who God is in his holiness. So that we can go on doing other things. So I'll give you an example of this from just human experience where we understand this dichotomy. Yesterday... 
I was with my wife and our four kids at this Celtic festival. All sorts of things were happening. I think we lost our redheaded two-year-old three or four times. I was going nuts. She just runs everywhere, and she's fast. Um, our oldest daughter at one point, Hadassah, we couldn't find her for about five minutes. And any parent in here knows what was happening inside of me when we couldn't find her. Uh, at one point, I ran towards the exit looking for cops. And something that happened in my mind, a vision popped up in my mind, that especially if you're a dad, this has happened with you. I pictured some strange, wicked man grabbing my daughter and running away with her, and me catching up to him and crushing his skull into the ground. (laughs) Now, I know that's kind of intense and a little bit weird, but it points out something of truth that we know. Now, small... uh, small aside from this is that one of the reasons I thought that is because of my own sin and paranoia and fear. But there's something about what was stewing inside of me that tells us something we need to know that we already do know about God and judgment. What was most prominently stewing in me in that little vision, that moment? Hatred? I would argue it's love. It's wrath. It's both. It's loving wrath. It's wrathful love. There's something about God that is full of fierce passion in his love. He's he's not like our silly sitcoms. He's always been holy in his love We ask questions that mock who God is, and we say things like, how can God be angry and loving at the same time? Where my question is, how can we be so confused as to associate indifference or weakness or cowardice with true love? Because love is, that's not fearsome isn't love. Love that's not powerful to protect and vindicate or doesn't care to do so is not holy love. God's love is fueled by a holy jealousy and retribution. And just to bring this home again, we know this. We know about God's holiness and our unholiness and about judgment. We know about it. But number two... We just continue to create judgment. We create judgment and death. That's the second observation as we read on in this. We suppress the truth of God because we're busy creating judgment and death in and of ourselves. Who is penally responsible for the judgment of God? For death? Well, we are. It's not the judge's fault for sentencing a murderer. He's just sentencing. And watch how this sentencing manifests. Let's go back to verse 28. Chapter 1. It says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, see the pattern there? We don't fill our minds with the goodness and holiness of God 
we suppress that and try to fill our minds with other things so our minds become debased or darkened and it just leads to behavior that is uh, appropriate to that debasement. Why do we do bad things? Because we think bad things. Because we are bad things. And God, his sentencing in his place is not that he creates it, we create it. He lets us. The first sentence of God before the ultimate judgment day is that today, in small and I would say increasing measure, God just turns us over to ourselves and lets us do what we already want to do. And that's a scary thing. We didn't want to retain God in our knowledge. And so when we don't have ourselves filled with the knowledge of God, then all sorts of evil will fill us when God doesn't. Wrong thinking about God results in, in wrong actions on our part and perverse behavior. Uh, perversion simply means to, to, to twist that which we're designed for. And so we per- pervert something good because our darkened minds that have been devoid of God demands it. And God's judgment is first executed in permitting what we want to be manifest. With debased minds, we become the inventors of evil. We create judgment and death. Let's go back to this list that listed. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I want to say this as tenderly as I can, but I have to speak it very directly. If you don't see yourself on this list, it's not because you're not on this list. It's because you don't see it. Because we suppress that which we know. I'm on this list in very different places. In our darkened minds, God gives us over to really creating hell on earth before the ultimate place. It's a position of our hearts that's turned away from God and minds that are darkened. And the, the first sentencing of this is God turning us over to this. What is darkness but the absence of light? What is cold but the absence of heat? And when we don't acknowledge God, we create judgment and death and evil and the list goes on. God allows an increasing measure us to do what we want. Even check out Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. God's just the wage giver. We're the wage earners. So what, what ultimately effectually sends people to hell? Is it God? Well, necessarily, it's sin. And what creates hell-like things on earth that we try to suppress or click away from, that doesn't exist. What what creates that? It's sin. It's the sin that you're a part of and I'm a part of. It's the system of sin in humanity. We create judgment and death. We don't have to theorize about what hell is like as much as we have to realize that hell is just a lot more of 
what we're like when we're not acknowledging God. Um, I just got done reading a book this year about Auschwitz and the horrors of what's happening, what happened inside of Auschwitz. And if you think, oh, that's just happened because of that political thing or whatever, no, that happened because that's us left to ourselves. And even in Auschwitz, there is a merciful, restraining hand of God, even there. I read a few years ago about the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade and William Wilberforce before, uh, before convincing uh, through some trickery in the parliament in England them to banish slavery. He had to expose the realities of how human beings were placed like cattle, worse than cattle, in these ships and shipped to another continent. And we here today think things like, oh, that's just then, or that's just there, or that's just then. But did you know that there are more slaves on earth today than in any point in human history in the past? Mostly sex slaves. And don't think, oh, that's just Bangkok. It is, but we all feed the market. There is a proportional rise with sex slavery and pornography and child pornography. And in our different flavors of sexual depravity, we all feed the market. And the worst is when we scoff at that reality instead of just letting it sink in a little bit. I don't want to walk around paranoid and condemned, but man, when I don't see God and his creation and women the way I'm supposed to, I can't point the finger at anyone else. God help us. We create judgment in hellish realities. And the worst thing is we, we take credit for the good things that we do, even though that's mostly a result of God's common grace to people like you and me who don't deserve it. And we go on suppressing that and, and participating in our things. And it gets worse. Number three, in that place of judgment that we're creating, as we, uh, we knowingly deny God, we compel others into Judgment. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see, we invite others into our hell and depravity and debasement of our minds. We do it through, through lots of different means and jokes. We compel others into judgment. We lure we endorse, we parade, we celebrate the sins of others. So long as it correlates with or at least kind of indirectly justifies my flavor of sin. And we celebrate in order to accommodate our own sin. You've heard it said, misery loves company. Well, we endorse and even kind of create countercultures of sin to orient other people around our rebellion and depravity. And we try to redefine others so that they can stand in solidarity with our sin. And we all do it. It's not just them. You know that that's exactly what the devil is up to? He knows that he's already been condemned. He's already been defeated. The devil can't win. Jesus already conquered him. 
The only power the devil has is he just wants others to suffer with him. He's, he's already been defeated. The only power in, he has in your life is to deceive you about how you've participated in all of this and what and, and hold from you, lie about what God's done to remedy this. Misery loves company. We do this. We lure others into our place of judgment. Now, it's bad enough that we reject God, and then we go on celebrating sin and lure others, but it brings this state, and we make it worse. Number four, I see that we judge others. So isn't this crazy? We deny God. We create this mess. We want other people to come into this mess, and then we judge others anyway to try to absolve ourselves. The next verse, which is chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, I said we celebrate our own sin and this mess we've created, but we also bring our hypocrisy full circle by judging other people. Uh, for instance, if I, if I kind of endorse my kind of orientation of sin, maybe categorically, we have to use labels here, categorically like right-wing type of sins, I am apt to kind of like judge left-wing kind of sins. Like the people who are just... Uh, licentious and all the liberalities and sensualities over there but the things oriented towards my own types of greed or whatever I don't judge as much appropriately I compel people over here and I point the finger over there we all do this we all do this specifically it's been shocking looking out in our culture and seeing people who level this fierce judgment at men like Harry Weinstein or Donald Trump specifically for sexually objectifying women but then at the same time celebrate men like Hugh Hefner which is the same thing celebrating the same types of things that we're condemning at the same time the same types of things that are described just a few verses before, I said earlier, like, we, t- we like to categorize and judge them and, 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 and celebrate our category. Well, this is just, sometimes we just get confused and say, man, as long as it's convenient to me and I'm loud enough, I'll judge other people, even if it's in the same category. It's not just the, the uh, religious people who are self- self-righteous. We all are. We all do what's described here. And it gets worse. Not only do we judge others, we judge God. We judge God, and we judge him with presumption. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, that you, will, you who judge others and practice the same things, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, in our rampage of sin, we, we endorse our own type of perversion. We condemn other flavors of perversion and we multiply judgment and wrath and then we turn around and blame it 
on God and treat him as if he owes us something. You know, like if God's got to be like our mercy genie or our slave. And then we just rub that lamp and then we say, all right, now do what I want. As if he owes us something. God doesn't owe us anything except for judgment. Even just consider the questions. How, how can a loving God send people to hell? Well, we're the guilty ones. We're trying to impute the guilt on God, even in that question. God is righteous, and we put his character on trial, even in questions like this, and then we demand our terms for his mercy. When the fact that mercy at all is such a thing that even exists should silence and humble us. And it does. Number six, you guys are doing a really good job with this one. Final observation about this. The full measure. So I said already the, the first steps of judgment is God turning us over to ourselves. But my final observation here is that the full measure of God's judgment is yet to be revealed. It's yet to be revealed. Verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, meaning uh, the, the love and the truth of God is not penetrating inside of you, because of your impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourselves wrath on the day of wrath. This storing up for yourself speaks so much when I read it, speaks so much of of God's restraint. I've heard people, you know, kind of be like, well, if God is fierce in his judgment, then he's just, you know, he's just out of control and eruptive. Well, my four-year-old Alma, she's eruptive. Other kids take her toys, she'll punch them in the face. God's wrath is stored up. It's calculated. It's patient. It's righteous. It's not eruptive. It's stored up for a day that's to be revealed. And it's stored up infinitely so. Why is his wrath of such a big nature? You know, it's like we think, well, I did something little. Why is it such a big deal to him, like forever and stuff? We think about things like that. Well, think about this. The penalty of any sin is proportional to the position of the person against whom you sin. I'm going to explain it like this. If I kick a dog, if I kick a dog, I could be fined, probably worse. The worst thing that happened, I could be fined. If I kick my friend, uh, the position of that person has more value, and I could probably be punished worse. If I kick a cop, worse, right? If I kick the president of the United States, If I'm not shot, which likely I'll be shot a thousand times, if I'm not shot, I will stand in probably indefinite prison time. Well, how much more valuable is God than the President of the United States? Infinitely. And so if we sin against God the best of our finite words can only do a little bit to describe the type of penalty we deserve. Hell is first and foremost a position of our hearts that's debased and, and brought against God. It's, it's relational isolation between us and God. 
but it also has with it a, a, def, a destination involved. And that destination, according to this verse, is to be revealed. Now, what do we already know that's already revealed about this place? Hell is first and foremost a position of our hearts against God, but there's a place ultimately involved. Well, Jesus says, Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather all of the kingdom, uh, gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Mark 9, he says it's an unquenchable fire. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, he talks of when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. I think the worst thing of it is the fact that he describes that this way of destruction is the broad way. Like more people go to that place. I suspect if you were to talk to someone who's there, they'd say, I never knew I was going here. Think about it today. Most people think, I'm good with God. You know, like, I sent this in or I did that. Like, we convince ourselves, why wouldn't we? I did for 14 years. I convinced myself I was right with God when I was just spreading around perversion and hypocrisy until someone preached the gospel to me. It's the deception of it that's most severe, that's shocking to me. Now, if heaven is a place we can't even understand, think about this. Heaven is a place, the goodness of which we just can't quite understand. Being in the presence of God, being in his presence, it's like, it's like there's textures and colors that we just don't have capacities to describe. It's a good that we can't comprehend compared to which our current existence is comparatively like a dream state. That's the, the, the level of reality. Well, if, if heaven is a good we cannot imagine, then being without the presence of God, of which we have little pieces of now, being without it, his relational presence forever, that's an evil we cannot describe. Fire, burning, all these things are just the best words that we have. But it's an indescribable separation in reality. We say, how can a good God send people there? I think the better question is, how can a righteous God allow unrighteous people into his presence? The fact that we don't ask that question, coupled with the first one, reveals the state of our heart that needs redemption. How can a good God a righteous God, a holy God, allow unholy, non-good people into his presence? That's the greatest question, and we're going to answer that right now. How can a good God allow evil people into his presence? You see, earlier we said that in the state of condemnation, we compel others into our judgment. The greatest shocker in history is that while we're compelling people into judgment, Jesus is compelling people into redemption. See, we reject God. Think about the pattern. We reject God. We reject the knowledge of God. Our minds are filled with darkness. 
and then we do evil things. But there is a reversal of this whole pattern that's revealed in verse 4. God's kindness is meant to lead us to what? Repentance. You know the word repentance means a changing of your mind? So check this out. Because of what Jesus did, does, he allows a reversal of this pattern. Instead of minds rejecting God and, and filled with evil and then doing evil things, it's Jesus accepting the mission of God and accepting us so that he could fill our minds with restoration and that we can live the way that we're meant to live. Jesus does this, compelling us to redemption. And it's described the very next chapter, chapter 3 of Romans. It says, verse 23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And those who are justified, though, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I'm going to stop there for a second. The word propitiation simply means basically substitution. Now, if we have sinned against an infinitely valuable and righteous God, our punishment is infinite. But Jesus, who is without sin and who is of infinite value, God became man, lived a perfect life, his one-time finite sacrifice on a Friday afternoon, one time, because it's done by an infinitely holy person, is able to pay our infinite penalty before a righteous God. So he, because of his substitution of his perfect life, dies for our sin, sheds his blood, becomes our substitution, he is able to bring us into his presence again. How can a holy God allow unrighteous people into his presence? It's by covering their sin with his sinlessness and his sinless blood. Check this out, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. Only the one who is truly just is qualified to justify the unjust. And to reject such a great salvation is unspeakable. 